Hey everyone, welcome back this week. I am really excited to bring you this guest, and like I'm always really excited about my guest anyway. I, I know I always say that, but I am. This is going to be Travis Nass. He is someone that I've known since high school, and I just, especially after talking with him this recent interview, I just, God, I'm so proud of him. It's It's funny how in high school... We're partly who we're going to be, but we're partly not, too. And um, I just think that I always saw him as so much younger than me for some reason. I think because he looked really young, and I always felt like maybe just I w- always felt a bit old anyway in high school. But he's done so much stuff. First of all, he was a bartender and really like a mixologist, I would say, and just created these amazing cocktails and amazing cocktail menus and things like that, which I I like alcohol (laughs) so I do like good drinks though and I just think that it's cool that someone found a passion in service of that kind and in the service industry I think especially the pandemic has really brought a lot of things to light but one of those things is you know we have restaurant workers we have people whose career this is And that's from the person who's starting out busing tables all the way through to someone who's running a kitchen or running a restaurant or even owning one. And the pandemic was really hard on that industry. And I think also in the U.S., I mean, I'm in London now, so you're not tipping. You really don't. I mean, I'll tip just because I'm American, so I'll tip pretty often. But a lot of people don't. And it's the culture here because people are getting paid more of a living or decent wage to do this work where in the u.s is just not what we do and travis brought up some really good points around that that i hadn't thought of around the inequity of tipping structures and right now in the states there's been a lot of talk around states reducing the federal aid that they're getting for unemployment because people are making more on unemployment than they are at work and that's not a rumor that's not a thing where oh people are just saying that it's true But the problem isn't the people. The problem isn't the people working. The problem is that the wages are the way they are. I mean, that's really the issue, right? So you can't say, well, there's people being lazy. No, it's actually people are in a industry and in careers and in situations where they're able to provide for their families better by not working. So that should be seen as the problem, not you know, just the fact that, that this, that they're doing that, it's not something they're doing. It's actually something that's happened to them. And so, um, I don't know, it was a really interesting chat for me in that respect. So we get into a lot because we talked through his career and what's led him to found an amazing nonprofit organization. All that to say, he founded a nonprofit with a partner and it, I don't know, it's just really cool because you're just seeing people finding something that's wrong and trying to fix it. And I think that is one of the things I respect most. You know, there are two, there's that, and then there's like the whole aspect of people having creative careers, and I love that too. But I think people really inspire me who see a problem and they try to fix it, and they try to find a way to do that. And he's found a really unique way of doing that. His charity just had a big fundraiser, but you can still donate to them. So I would definitely like people to go and look up another round, another rally. If you're interested in a place to give where you can contribute to somewhere that will help people directly impacted by job loss or job displacement or 
even temporary job loss due to the pandemic or even before or after because there are other things that affect restaurant workers like healthcare. Um, if they hurt their foot, they can't just work from home, for example, as well. So there's just all kinds of stuff. So I really like how this episode, I mean, it's lighthearted and we have a lot of fun, but it's also really eye-opening for how someone and many organizations are actually working to help improve the lives of people who we rely on to serve us, really. Um, one other thing that we got into is volunteerism that Travis does, and it really resonated with me when he was volunteering because he wanted to support something, show that he was for something, rather than only protesting against. And there's value in protest and activism, and it's important, and I've I've done some protests. Not much, but I've done some. But I've always been of the mindset about volunteering as well. And I didn't think of it in that way, though, where you're volunteering to be for something and show you're for something. So that was a nice way to reframe it for me. But anyway, I hope you really enjoy this. I've gone on long enough. I'm trying to minimize my my rants or whatever these are to under five minutes. I've almost hit that goal today. <laughs> but thanks so much for being here. Thanks for listening. If you can follow us, review us, that'd be really appreciated. If you have guest ideas, let me know. And enjoy the episode. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. Well, everyone, this week is going to be a lot of fun. I actually have someone I went to high school with, and we were in band together, not band geeks at least one of us wasn't he was in the drum line and i was in the pit so you know i think that's arguable i would <laughs> definitely <laughs> consider myself a band geek okay so he was a band geek but but we were in the well he was in the cool part of the band i was in the part of the band where we got to skip pe but we didn't actually march so i'm talking to travis nass he's the co-founder and chief operating officer at another round another rally how's it going travis pretty good how about yourself Doing well. Thank you. Thanks. I'm excited to chat with you today. Let's just start with, I guess, what's Another Round, Another Rally, for people who haven't heard of that. Another Round, Another Rally is a nonprofit organization that's focused on the hospitality industry. We provide emergency assistance funds as well as professional development funds for, for the hospitality industry with a focus on helping those who have been historically excluded from uh, bar and restaurant leadership. What made you start the organization? Yeah, that's a great question. So Amanda Gunderson, our co-founder, and myself had worked together previously in a kind of a small spirits broker based out of LA. And we never really made a move either personally or professionally ever since then without kind of consulting each other and talking through ideas. <clears throat> and it was... Uh, few years ago now that we were kind of lamenting the lack of resources for the hospitality industry and wanted to 
talk through, you know, ways we could help. We were always being in that kind of brand ambassador role. Education is a big part of that. And we were always trying to figure out a way to make that that part of the industry a little more inclusive. And those folks that don't necessarily get the same opportunities as some other folks. And we also saw this big kind of problematic part of the industry where the vast majority of the industry doesn't have healthcare Mm. or any other protections in the workplace and what we we're talking about what we could do to to help in that area as well and that kind of started the brainstorming process that ended up becoming another round of the rally and you know that first year 2018 we we put together our business plan and started putting together our board of directors and went through a brand new process. We had an amazing branding team with All Collective and Ty Largo and their team did an amazing job coming up, coming up with their branding and name. And so we went through the whole process with them and created this beautiful identity that uh, really spoke to us and spoke to the needs of the industry. And we've kind of uh, taken off and run with that. And since then, we've been able to, you know, in the last year, we've helped over 10,000 people and been really grown exponentially from where we thought we would be by now. Do you think that you would have been able to use your organization at some point early in your career? And we'll go actually at the start of your career, like you, you, you were in hospitality and service for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But is that something that when you were putting it together, were you thinking about like maybe even ways that it, you could have used support earlier on, or did it just come from you having listened to so many people as being part of the industry? That's a great question. I think there there's for sure times that I could have benefited from an organization such as this. So I've been in the hospitality industry or tangential to it for 20 plus years. The last 10 or so have been in the bar and spirits industry. And the last five or so have been on the brand side of things. There have definitely been times when we've been where I've been out of work and, you know, not sure where my next meal was coming from and you know that's a scary place for anyone and over the past year almost the entire industry was out of work at one point or another and there's still millions of restaurants that are closed you know the restaurant industry is 10 plus percentage of the workforce generally speaking Mm -hmm. so that's a huge percentage of our labor force so to have that percentage of our labor force out of work is devastating. There's no way we would have ever anticipated such great need. And there's, even with all of the organizations out there, we're one organization, there's quite a few organizations that are doing some work in the space now. And even with all of us doing all we can, there's never going to be enough to meet the need that's out there. And there's never going to be, there's too much work to do. And we're, we're never going to be able to meet all that need, but hopefully that combined with us all doing as much work as we're able to and combined with maybe some systemic changes, we should be able to help at least ease some of that pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just go back in your career a little bit and then we'll come back to this because and just talk through kind of what people can do. But 
how did you start out in in the industry? And I know at one point you were bartending, but what what did you kind of start out doing, and how did you end up on that path and staying in it? So I mean, I guess it kind of depends how far back you want to go. I mean, at some point during high school, I was working at the food court at Valencia Mall, making wraps behind a quick serve counter. But I don't, uh, I definitely didn't see that as a career option at that point. I worked somewhat in the industry during college. And afterwards, I had always wanted, since I was a little kid, I had always wanted to work at Benihana, being a Teflon chef. So like, Every once in a while, I would apply to one or a couple of them, assuming that that was never going to be an option for me. And one one summer, I ended up getting picked up by the Newport Beach Benihana. Uh, and I was trained by one of the original Benihana chefs, as well as the chef who developed their chef training program. So I went through that. And interestingly, the chef training program for Benihana only teaches you the cooking part of it all the tricks you have to kind of pay other chefs to teach you. Huh? Because, you know, like a lot of the chef income is tip based and a lot of their regular guests are, you know, specifically request for them. So if you're taking a tool out of their toolbox, you've got to kind of, you know, like pay for someone who might not, be coming back to them type of thing yeah and all of those all of those tricks you know like balancing the (laughs) egg or whatnot or doing the volcano and stuff like that there's all these different tricks on how to learn that without costing a bunch of product oh yeah that's Uh, a good point because i can't imagine even trying to like just the whole thing with the egg and breaking it properly eventually that could go through a carton or like flipping a knife around without killing yourself <laughs> true yeah uh-huh. yeah true yeah i kind of do that trick at home sometimes by accident and <laughs> so so yeah so i worked for them for roughly five years or so i ended up learning almost every job in the restaurant and at that point i was just kind of like well i guess i'm done here worked at a couple other different uh, japanese concepts ended up at pf chang's own concept called Taneko, based in phoenix here and worked for them for a few years, ended up becoming a bartender and manager though. And when that, that concept closed due to the 2000, it was right around the 2008 crash. And it was so, I mean, that concept was really just kind of ahead of its time and just at the wrong, wrong place, wrong time type of thing, you know, to give you an idea, we couldn't sell a pork belly ramen to save our lives. Mm. Yeah, um, now it's like people will stand out line, yeah, in yeah. line. Yeah, go to New York at a place and like there's a line around the block or totally, yeah. <laughs> Now it's probably around two blocks because of the distancing, right? It's just like right. a longer line. <laughs> yeah, so I think that was, it was just a little bit ahead of its time, I think was one of the issues with it. And then when when that crash happened, it just kind of panned it investors and it was like the the easy cut to make after that i moved to rancho pino which is a chef-owned concept by chef chris robertson one of the probably still my favorite chef in arizona it was amazing kind of uh slow food farm to table type cuisine very you know her 
her thing was always plating as if it fell from a tree. You know, mm. So very kind of natural presentation, natural, like enhancing the natural flavors of food type mm. of thing. She has a little bit of Italian influence from her family, but it was, it was very much kind of like Arizona centric, very se- fresh seasonal food type of thing. That was the first restaurant I worked with that had bread and cheese. <laughs> so, which is something you don't really think about going from, you know, Japanese cuisine to Western cuisine. But it was very interesting, like having that background, it was very interesting to see how the methods, the different cuisines traveled to get to the same thing. Like how mm. how you add salt or acidity or, you know, different fat, different things like that are, are done in very different methods in, in Eastern versus Western cuisine. So it was very interesting to, to see that dichotomy and have that, have those backgrounds kind of in the back of my mind. So when I ended up taking over the bar program there, it allowed me a flexibility in my brain to come up with maybe different flavor profile destinations than one would normally associate with uh, a particular cu- cuisine type. We, I, that one, that was very much kind of a one man show. It was really for almost the whole time I was there. If, if we were open, then I was the bartender hmm. type of thing. So there wasn't very many days that they were open that I wasn't there. It, it's just a very different experience because you don't need to like there's no communication needed in that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't need to communicate with people about prep work if I'm the one doing the prep work. Mm-hmm. Or I don't need to communicate with people on where our inventory is at if I'm doing the inventory and ordering. We don't need to communicate, you know, like all those things. It, I just have it in my brain. So when I moved over to a resort where I was the bar manager for a team of folks, it was, I kind of had to get used to the processes involved in taking, kind of developing the processes needed that I did internally and just instinctually and write those out and form those into like actual procedures that the whole team had to follow. So we were on the same page. Yeah. And that's, I mean that, so did you like that challenge and kind of going, I mean, into the operations more side of things, I guess, like, well, operations with a team. Cause you were doing that at the bar. I mean, you were just running the whole show. And I don't think people realize like when we go up to order a drink and maybe actually if we can go into that a little bit, like when I would, when I go up and order a drink and I look at a menu and I go, ah, I don't want that. I want that. You know, I look at a menu first of mm-hmm. all, cause you created the menu. Right. Right. So what, kind of goes into that and i know it's probably a huge question but just when you come up with cocktails and i don't know what the right way to say it is is just cocktails or craft cocktails or whatever like what goes into that and what did you do in creating those so i think that'd be interesting just as someone who appreciates a good drink i definitely would like to know yeah so that's a great question we and this goes kind of into once after i moved into the the resort from there i started doing uh some consulting work as well. I started a small consulting business on the side and consulted for both brands and bars on their beverage list. And I think 
there's a few things go- that go into making a good menu. I, you know, like a menu we had at Rancho Pino was very different from the menu I created for Lanza Termosa, which was very different than the the menu we had for the bar at, or the pool at the resort. And it's very different from the bar mm-hmm. menu that we had at the resort. And all of those are very different from consulting clients that I've had. And so, you know, it's part of it is doing something that will work for the con- that makes sense conceptually with the the concept of the restaurant that it's situated in. Part of it is something that's will be successful for the clientele and the the both the demographics and the the location of the restaurant and and also price point for the restaurant mm-hmm. and the the I think the most challenging thing and the thing that is most often overlooked by folks creating cocktail lists is i guess variety is the right word for it Mm -hmm. you know making sure that the cocktail list hits all the all these different points without being too focused on on one area over another you know i've seen some cocktail lists that have four or five peach and ginger drinks Mm -hmm. and and you're like well the bar the bartender here the bar owner here must really like peach (laughs) (laughs) do you really need four or five of those or is one good enough you know like i I would argue that one stone food stone fruit drink generally is probably good enough to meet those needs so you know like i've got this almost like a bingo card of all the different notes you want to hit you know and you, you also want to make sure that the that cocktail list makes sense for the size of it makes sense for the size of the rest of the menu mm. like you don't want well i would say there's very limited situations where you would want a four four or five page cocktail list if the there's only 10 menu items on the food menu <laughs> You know, so, so, so I think that's the the most challenging piece of it is making sure that that you're you're putting the minimum amount of cocktails on with the most amount of variety. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That do you? Sense. It does. And do you have a favorite cocktail that you've come up with yourself, or is that like asking like a question like, do you have a favorite child or something? I don't know. Like. I mean, I've definitely had people say that to me. That is like, because that's one of the things I ask when I go to new bars. It's like, oh, what's your favorite thing? Should I try? What's your favorite thing? What do you like to make? That type of thing. And I've definitely had that answer before. And I don't know if there's anything that's more frustrating to me. Well, because I'm like, really? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, is is that spirit going to get jealous of the other spirit and have its life ruined? No. So, I mean, I get it from both sides. I get both sides of it. The, the the other side of it is like, well, I mean, it depends on your mood, you know, like mm-hmm. in my feel. Because uh, I, I definitely have days where I want to drink something light and refreshing and other days where I want to drink something, you know, like dark and boozy, Yeah, you know. So it's, I think, and, you know, my taste uh, could probably differ from anyone else's you know like i like something overproof 
really bitter and really and stirred. That's not many people's cup of tea. So chances are, if I were, if you ask me what my favorite thing on the menu is, and I give you that, chances are it's not going to be what you're looking for. So I think there's some something in that question that's really requires asking more questions back than mm. kind of the more dismissive well that'd be like choosing my favorite ch- child like i think you can answer you can ask additional questions and get to a better answer rather and i think that's probably the more correct way to go about it rather than either just giving a random answer that might not be ap- applicable to the person asking or coming up with a more dismissive, I don't want to answer at all. But to that, my favorite thing I've created, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. One one I talk a lot about is I did for one year at the resort, I did for Thanksgiving, I made a turducken cocktail, which I thought was entertaining. <laughs> um, so what was uh, in it? It was... And I'll give this this preference that this was probably five to 10 years ago. So it's okay. probably going to sound kind of dated now. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we, we did a duck fat washed wild turkey rye with cranberry syrup, lemon juice, egg white, and figgy pudding bitters. That actually sounds really cool. I used cranberry sauce and put it with vodka and soda and that and rosemary on top, like sprig. That was my cocktail. I did it at the holidays. I was alone in London. So I mm-hmm. made cranberry sauce just to make a cocktail, Nice, which, you know, but no, that sounds really cool. So like creating that though, I mean, d- is it just a lot of experimentation? And when you like create a cocktail, I mean, how does that go? Cause I know I'll just say I'll make it in Manhattan. I'm really just pouring whiskey and bitters and, calling it whatever I want to, but is it, right. does it take a lot to create that? I mean, I assume it's just like even creating anything someone, a chef creates, right? Yeah. One of my, probably the most useful cocktail book I own is not a cocktail book at all. It's called, oh, the, the vegetarian flavor Bible, the flavor, there's the flavor Bible and the vegetarian flavor Bible. I have them both, but it's, Basically, it's a it's a, a giant thick book, and it, it's got every ingredient you can think of, like say rosemary, and it gives mm-hmm. you a list of underneath rose. If you go to, it's organized like kind of like an encyclopedia. You can flip. It's you know, alphabet alphabetized by ingredient, and so you can go to rosemary, and it would give you a list of all the ingredients that pair well with rosemary with with the super like the super well-known pairings in bold i would argue that you would have to have some sort of conceptualization of classic cocktails and as a basis you know those kind of familiar cocktail templates like a sour template or uh, collins or like a cocktail manhattan martini type of thing old-fashioned you know having these different templates in your mind that you can work from. I would also argue that there's nothing that hasn't been already done. So to that end, I have very little qualms about giving away recipes and stuff like that, because I I don't think there's anything that I could come up with that somebody else hasn't done already. I mean, even that Turduncan cocktail, I'm 
you know, fat washing has been around for a long time and people have definitely done stuff with duck fat before I've done stuff with duck fat. Using wild turkey for a Thanksgiving cocktail is not new at all, particularly <laughs> with a combination of with cranberry. You have to have that history in the back of your mind to start out with the creation process and then taking that and combining that with those flavor combinations that you can get mm. from the from the flavor bible, I think it's super helpful. Hmm. No, that's just really cool to hear about, though. I mean, I've, I'm someone who I've liked to go to different bars and find like speakeasy type places and stuff like that. Like, we'll talk about. Well, we can do that now. And then I mean, whatever, this doesn't have to be linear. People can be used <laughs> to this. I wanted right. to ask you about like a competition fundraiser you guys have coming up mm-hmm. that. And I know one of the I think one of the judges is did the place raised by wolves in San Diego, which yeah. I went to, which that's cool because you go to the mall. But then you go behind like a fireplace, I think it is, and there's a whole, yep. whole like place. And have you been there, by the way? Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. But anyway, so let's just talk about the competition, and we'll go back to the other stuff, so people can get a variety here. I hope sure. no one's drinking. <laughs> if you're drinking, you're not going to follow. I mean, it's five o'clock somewhere, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely not too early. We so ready, set, show is competition. We are doing on. May 23rd. It's a, it's teams of bartenders. They're given a sponsored product and a cocktail template to work with. And they create a, they create a cocktail recipe and perform a choreographed routine to music that they film. It's hosted by Meatball the Drag Queen, who's who was on, I think, the first season of the Boulay Brothers Dragula, which is a drag competition. Anyway, Meatball's going to be hosting, and they'll introduce the the teams and their their sponsors, and then we'll play this pre-recorded performance that the teams have made, and then we'll come back. The host will be with, or the host and the judges will hopefully be with us there there live at a gay bar in LA that Meatball used to perform at all the time to kind of raise awareness for their plight. Um, gay bars have struggled a lot during the pandemic uh, because, you know, the, there were mostly meeting and performance spaces, which mm. don't leave a lot of space for to be able to be open with the economy shut down. And so, so we'll hopefully be able to showcase them and and we'll come back and they'll the teams will get their critiques live from our judges we've got chris patino who said started raised by wolves and they also started bartenders weekend which is where we were originally going to do this competition we've got bayardo who used to be in the hospitality business as well and now they're an actor that they're on uh tiny pretty things netflix show about dancers and Brittany ashley who's a comedian and writer and also used to be a bartender as well so anyway, it's going to be an amazing night of some fantastic entertainment where we've been chatting with the teams as they've been uh, putting together their performances and they are getting very, very creative. We're very excited to see what they come up with. And is this going to be online so people can buy a ticket and tune in? And Yeah, you can buy tickets at anotherroundevents.org. It's free to anybody in the hospitality industry. And okay. we have a few different ticket levels for other folks. Uh, we've got the the general admission ticket, which is $10 and comes with a digital program. $25 also gets you a pin and a mask. And then uh, $100 comes with a little cocktail kit that you can 
so you can make yourself a drink while you're watching the 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 event that sounds like a lot of fun so all right so we've talked about that competition which i wanted to definitely do and i wanted to just name drop a bar <laughs> basically <laughs> in san diego so great i mean race by wolves <laughs> is one of the prettiest bars i've ever been to it's so cool so well done and and a little bottle shop that they have mm-hmm. in the front has every bottle any bartender could ever want <laughs> it's it's a very i mean everything that that consortium does is very well done but raised by wolves in particular is incredible yeah, it's it's just super cool. Like people in San Diego, I mean, there's a couple bar like there's that that place is one of my favorites. And Fernside is this place in South Park that I love. And I I the guy, I think I want to say he used to work at Livewire, but I don't know if that's true. But anyway, they have this one drink, and it's it's like a peanut butter whiskey base or mm-hmm. something like that. But I don't know. I probably got that wrong too. But anyway, it's so cool. But yeah, I miss I miss going out to bars. So that's that's fun. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's interesting to me. I mean, cause a lot of times I think I'll just speak for me. I don't know. I always want to add like a we, but I will think someone's a bartender. Like, you know, is that some people it's a career, some people it's just to get through college or get through whatever. And so for you really doing this became a career, but you know, you evolved into the operations management side and then you did the consulting and now the nonprofit work. What made you stay with it? That's a good question. I, you know, I, it probably wasn't until I started working at Benihana where I really saw kind of a career path possible in the hospitality industry. Up until then, it was more just working because I needed income. And, you know, as I... I definitely saw a career path within Benihana, but as I kind of learned more parts of Benihana's business, I also saw that as kind of limiting. And I mean, definitely no offense to anybody who's still with Benihana. It's a great company and you can do great things. But for for me, I was always more, I always wanted to learn more. So I can definitely see the appeal of sticking with one company and having that stability and being able to grow and, and move up within that company. But to me, that, that just wasn't my thing. I would rather learn different parts of the industry and learn more on different sides of things. So that that's really been the focus for me is what can I learn from, from doing this other opportunity, you know? So, you know, moving to Rancho Pino, it was to learn, you know, Western cuisine and fine dining. And uh, moving to the resort, it was to learn resort operations and mm-hmm. to learn how to manage a team. Moving into uh, consulting, it was to learn how to learn my personal uh, business development and learn how to uh, adapt my skills to a variety of different concepts. And moving into brand ambassador work, it, it's was learning the other side of the industry, like learning a life as a supplier and how how you're able to benefit operators and beverage directors and, and what my skills and my products can help those folks better. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then obviously moving into the nonprofit world is uh, a whole different leap and a different side of the industry. I, I also spent a little bit of time with local distill at a local distillery. And that was cool to learn, uh, you know, like the production side of things as well. Yeah, so you've got a full picture now. So one thing I want to do, I mean, give you a chance to brag a little bit, but you were inducted into the Arizona Culinary Hall of Fame, correct? Yes. <laughs> so what <laughs> So what led to that and how was that experience for you? Uh, so that was while I was at the resort. At Lons, we were consistently rated in the top cocktail programs in the city, best cocktails in the city. This was the, I think it was the third year they even had a category for bartenders. Well, they call them beverage masters. It was, you know, it could have been anybody in in the beverage. They said bartender, brewer, winemaker. I think their barista may have been in there or coffee roaster might have been in there. But the, the year I won was only the third year they gave out. They had a category for it. And the two people prior to me were also bartenders. So honestly, I went in there very clearly expecting to lose. I mean, I was up against people who are way more talented to me than me. And I definitely didn't write any sort of thank you speech. So I'm very embarrassed about <laughs> like what I afterwards I was, I mean, I had, I have this thing where when unbelievable things happen to me, I kind of go kind of like a shock, uh, like lack of emotion, lack of being able to say anything type of thing. So I'm not very proud of the way I accepted that award because it was a huge honor and I didn't have much to say because I really very honestly didn't think it should have gone to me but it's it's i'm super proud of it and i'm very humbled to have been able to receive it and it's definitely worth bragging about for sure and i think you've continued to like grow in your career and now you're adding value to the people who are in the industry so i don't know maybe it was just you know part of it's like what you're doing after too if you didn't think you were the one that year you know certainly by now yeah, that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> hey, that's what I, that's what I'm here for, you know. <laughs> so besides starting the nonprofit, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, but you also do a lot of community work and mm-hmm. help people. And I just want to talk to you about that because I think one thing that is important in this podcast generally to me is to talk about what the whole person's doing because a lot of people don't end up don't seeing them don't see themselves as a whole person sometimes. They just see themselves right. as like their work or whatever. And so can you for talk sure, a little yeah. bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I do, you know, I volunteer for a number of different things. I'm on the board of directors for the USBG, which is the United States Bartenders Guild Phoenix. I've been in leadership with them for, I want to say, five to seven years. I've been on their education committee. I've been the the vice president, the president, and now I'm on the board of directors for them. That's kind of my biggest taste of where I've gotten leadership experience in the nonprofit world is through the Bartenders Guild. And and that's been super helpful moving into our own organization. I've also been volunteering in, I think, starting 
end of 2019, I started volunteering for Planned Parenthood as a clinic escort. I, you know, I just, I got tired of protesting, particularly in the Trump era. I got tired of protesting things that I didn't like, and I wanted to fight for things that I do want. And that's kind of where that that thought process was to to join, help with, help out with Planned Parenthood. And what do you do ahead. with the, in that? Like, what do you? What's your role? Like, do you just help people and make sure that they're safely able to come and go? Yeah. So the clinics have a volunteer escort program. Most do anyway. I'm sure it depends on where you live. Ours is currently shut down due to safety precautions with the pandemic. We're hoping to get that back up and running in the near future. And I I can't tell you how excited I am to get back to work with that. It was such a fulfilling part of my weekly schedule. Losing that particularly particularly during the pandemic has been very tough. But so, you know, each each location of the clinics are are different and you have depending on which clinic you're volunteering at, there's different regulations on how far away protesters can be and what where they can be and what they can do. Our goal as clinic escorts are just to identify ourselves as volunteers with Planned Parenthood and walk folks safely from their car into the clinic and give them the distraction and reassurance they need in order to not have to focus on any of the vitriol that's coming from the parking lots Hmm. or from, from the street, depending on where they are. Wow. That's really, I mean, I didn't know that was even a, like a role someone could play, I suppose. And I like that you decided rather than protesting what you're against, you decided to do what you're for. That's really, that's, I, I think that's really powerful because we are so used to just fighting against something. Right. Right. Yeah. And to me, it's really important. I think, I think it's just an attitude adjustment. I think it's much more empowering to be fighting for something rather than fighting against something. You know, like, I I think it's very easy to be against things, but coming up with alternatives to those and, uh, you know, like, it's easy to say that for-profit health insurance is garbage, but what's the alternative to that, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm using this because it's an easy alternative, you know, like, well, we can have not-for-profit healthcare where it's a single payer buy-in system, Mm -hmm. like most of the rest of the civilized world, you know, like that's an easy example, but there's, you know, other situations where it's not, you know, where that I, I guess when it comes down to is I'm, I'm not, and you know, maybe this is why I ended up going into the nonprofit world. It's easy to reject things and turn down things and be against things, but without having an alternative to that, it's not very, it's not really productive. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Not that yeah. everything in life needs to be productive, but uh, I think you're more likely to get buy-in into what you're fighting for if it's something that's, you know, if, if people can see that as a way forward rather than just mm-hmm. being, you know, because a lot of times you can't 
if you're fighting against something, you have to have that alternative in mind. Like, well, yeah. what are we going to do instead of this? Like, if we get rid of this, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Type of thing. And so I, I feel like being on the other side of that and fighting for that thing you want to replace things with is puts you in a much better position to have that conversation rather than just fighting against whatever it is. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm taking, I'm doing this like public leadership credential program right now. And the current course I'm in is on moral leadership in organizations. And prior to that, I did like in personal practice, but really I've learned a ton just about what it takes to get change. And yeah, you're right. Like change doesn't happen without having something you're going to go forward and do. I mean, you can't just say, oh, well, it's even like, I mean, for me, a big thing that I look at that I still don't understand is like the the idea, like all the people who don't have, who are displaced from homes, right? Nobody likes that, but it's like, what's the solution? So then it's just like, everyone just complains, but then, you know, I still haven't looked up like what are the proposed solutions and stuff like that. But I just think that, you know, it's the right thing to do is to like, try to have a positive impact and try to go and change things rather than just where, complain about them. Where is it? I think it's, I just read an article about, I think it's Finland eliminated houselessness by giving everybody like providing everyone who was houseless apartments and also life, like kind of life service counselors. Mm -hmm. And that, that was, that was cheaper to do than to allow houselessness to remain. Hmm like to provide the services for that, the, those who are displaced from homes. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, and in Europe, they definitely look at these things differently. So it's, it's just, I don't know. It's pretty cool that you're doing that and that you sought that opportunity. I mean, with the Planned Parenthood thing. Yeah. Planned Parenthood has definitely been, it's, you know, like some days are definitely better than others there. You know, there are some days where it's, very very draining like to have that amount of you know like we try to do all the people who volunteer are obviously amazing and all the all the patients are are the sweetest people but you know there's there's some days where the the protesters are are just people kind of praying on the side and it's it's not a big deal to be there like but there's other days when folks are yelling horrible things to patients the entire time. And when patients aren't around, they're yelling horrible things at us the entire time. And those days can be deaf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that is tough. So any, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that you do on the side? Yeah, the other thing I do, which I just started, so I can't tell you a whole lot about it. I just started as a precinct chair for the local Democrat Party. And so I don't know a whole lot about that yet, but I'm excited to get started. Our precinct is, you know, probably, it would probably take me uh, two to three hours to walk the perimeter of the whole thing. So it's not a huge area, but it's, I'm excited to get in there and be able to work local politics and, and get some things to benefit our immediate community through. I'm kind of working. I also joined my local, our local democratic socialists chapter. And I think that'll be 
good to work kind of tangentially with both Mm -hmm. of those. I'm not doing anything in leadership with the Democratic Socialist yet, kind of getting my feet wet there, trying to to see what their processes are and see where I'm the best fit. Mm -hmm. I think likely I've started attending the restaurant organizing committee with them. I think that'll probably be the best fit for me so I can help kind of work on unionizing restaurant workers. Yeah. Oh, cool. So all this kind of gets us back to another round, another rally. And can you talk a little bit about like, so say someone buys a ticket or to this event or, they just donate and I saw you also have opportunities to volunteer on your website. So can you talk about like, first of all, where the money's going, like what kind of services you're providing that to people and especially even around like the professional development, I think that'd be cool to hear about. And then just kind of like what people are inve- investing in, I guess, as a charitable contribution. Sure. So all right, we raised two major pools of funds, emergency assistance and professional development. Emergency assistance is obviously a little easier to get your head wrapped around, you know, and, and kind of outside of a de- pandemic, it would be more of like things we talked about at the top of the show, you know, raising money for some our folks who are diagnosed with cancer or people who have been, been in a car accident or things like that. And then the professional development piece, that's something where we're focusing our efforts with that on folks that have been historically excluded from restaurant leadership. And the the goal is to provide opportunities and resources to those folks to give them the tools and skills they need to, to really, you know, accomplish their career goals and, and, and make make these more, you know, like innovated kind of more dynamic workspaces that that really allow, really create these spaces that we're all hoping to see in the future with these more equitable, equitable spaces that we're all hoping to see in the future. And, and you know, I'm, it's well documented that uh, more diverse workplace populations create better products and create better outcomes. So we're really trying to help the industry get to a place where it should be because it's been a long time coming. And I think this this past year has really shined a light on a lot of the inequities baked into the system of the hospitality industry. Well, really all industries, but we're, I think it, it's really opened the eyes of some people who might not have seen that before. And I think there's a larger portion of the population that that's kind of open to that concept now and and sees the need and the value for moving to a place where where things are a little bit more equitable and where where we can give these workers kind of the the can get some more value and more you know a more stable situation than that maybe we have in the past it's good because it's something that I can say I haven't thought of. Like I've thought about things like their wages are horrible. So they rely on tips and that they don't generally have insurance that, and like thinking about the cost of insurance and knowing like in my job, like in it, like I have the luxury of, you know, paying a lot for insurance, but still having a salary and a steady paycheck that allows me to do that. Right. So there's all those kind of things or just even if I'm sick and I need to work, like I'm just sitting at a computer versus like, I can't, you can't run around a restaurant like that and you know, stuff like that. So, or time off, like time off costs you more 
Right. And there's a lot of that that's kind of, I mean, it's all interconnected. I mean, really everything is, right? But, you know, like restaurant professionals don't have sick pay or insurance, which Mm -hmm. means they often come to work sick, which means half of the restaurant ends up getting sick, which means they have to, the restaurant has to constantly be overstaffed and they have to have like, just count on a certain percentage of their staff calling in sick or calling, you know, calling out for the day. And it's a lot easier to call out for a shift when you're only getting paid two bucks an hour to do it, you know, and not to mention all the inequities based in tipping structures, you know, you know, black women make 40 cents for every dollar a white man makes and tips. So, you know, like you can talk about and historically tips, tipping structures were created, you know, kind of in that Jim Crow era, post slavery era as a means to employ black workers without having to pay them. So a lot of those inequities still exist today. And it's not going to be until we address tipping structures, generally speaking, until that gets fixed. Uh, I mean, I personally am maybe I might be rare in thinking this, but I personally would rather have a professional in my industry deciding what I'm worth and what I should be paid rather than some random who comes in to get a drink from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I I think tippings in particular, but compensation models, just generally speaking in the restaurant industry, I think it was one of the, the biggest inequities in our hospitality industry. And one of the things that most sorely need to be addressed if we're going to, create more sustainable, more equitable models moving forward in order to create something that will actually work for everyone. Yeah. Hmm. Gosh, uh, it's really, yeah, I appreciate you just talking through this because it's really interesting to think about. And especially as things are opening up after the pandemic and stuff and just, you know, I'm in London, so the tipping thing, it doesn't happen here. I still do it sometimes just being still very American, but, but it's interesting. Even the workers here, to my knowledge, like people who were furloughed, were getting 80% of their salary this whole time. That was not happening in the States. And even if it did, if they were getting 80% of their salary, it would have been nothing to do with their tips. So that's interesting. So is there anything else you want to cover? Right now, there's a big problem trying to get higher people for the restaurant industry. And part of that is because folks are making more on unemployment. And I haven't seen a lot of self-reflection on the industry about that like don't you think that that's problematic that your workers can make more money on unemployment not working than they can for you working sometimes more than a full-time job so i think i think that that's and you know like the response to that is usually well restaurants operate on such slim margins and i i I don't know if that's a good enough reason. I, I think that there's, you know, every other industry, generally speaking, has to pay their employees when they're working. Nobody, mm-hmm. we don't ask any other industry to have their customers subsidize their labor mm-hmm. pool. And, you know, like almost all industries have some sort of amount of seasonality, you know, particularly retail. And we don't ask them to, we don't ask 
customers to subsidize that employment. So I don't, and you know, every industry has costs. Mm-hmm. So to me, writing off the need for poverty wages as because there's low margins in food service doesn't, I don't know if that's an adequate answer. You know, I feel, I feel like there's gotta be methods of restructuring, restructuring the way it's shaped. So, so that there's an answer that works for everyone. I'm not, I don't know necessarily what that is, but I think saying there's small margins in, in the, the restaurant industry is kind of a cop out. I think it's used as a way to not have to deal with examining that area. Yeah. And it appeals to people like, because then people will say, yes, that's right. And, you know, and you have small business owners who say, yes, that's right. You can't, but it's like, well, then there's another problem because if people get paid more, they will be able to spend more and maybe. Right. You know. Right. It's, it's kind of that bottom up model of stimulus rather than the top down model, you know, like do we give tax breaks to the rich and corporations or do we give more money to the unemployed and uh, working poor? Mm-hmm. You know, and what will have a bigger benefit to 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 communities and to the economy? You know, just talking about Europe and, and their models, you know, like every other country has restaurants and the vast majority of them don't have tip structures and actually pay their workers. Mm-hmm. Like there's no reason why that can't be successful in the U.S. Yeah, that's true. Well, so do you have any advice or mantra that you would like to share with the More Than Work audience I, I, th- I think it's kind of what I said before. I, I think it's fighting for what you're for rather than mm. against things you're against. I think that's been helpful for me in organizing my life in a way that feels more positive And uh, I get more fulfillment out of that. Yeah, I like that. And I like that even... I don't know, just going back to you mentioning that you were missing something from your weekly schedule. Like during the pandemic, you weren't able to do the volunteer work when we with work, we spend all this time scheduling our day within these like nine to five, like here's my day and I have to attend these meetings and I have to do this and that. And then it seems like, and we do that because that's how we do our job. Well, right. Like we can't just say, Oh, I'm not going to this meeting. I'm supposed to run or something because I don't. But then with the things that we do for ourselves and I'm saying weeks, I know there's more than me on this one. So I can't speak for more than me. We don't do that. Like, for example, I didn't go on a bike ride today. And I went to all my meetings, though, you know, and it's like, well, that was for me. And just like the volunteering, even though we're doing it for other people, it's for us, too. And so I like that you kind of structure that. So you schedule those things in that are important to do. And that resonated with me a lot. So just wanted to point that out. I mean, I definitely think it's helpful to have something, you know, like scheduling Meals for nourishment is kind of like nourishing your soul, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's kind of making sure you're making that time to like do stuff that feeds your soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Well, so I have a series of questions called the Fun Five that I ask every guest, and I just like having maybe a baseline to see where everyone sits in the end, <laughs> end of it. Right. So I'll, I'll ask you those. So, what's the oldest T-shirt you have and still wear? This one's kind of a cheat. Because uh, it's not actually a t-shirt. It's a Hawaiian shirt. But it's a Hawaiian shirt from a Mr. Bungle concert in, from 1998. 
Whoa. Summer of 1998. Is that the year you graduated high school? Yeah. Nice. So that summer is when the Mr. Bungle California album came out and we went up to San Francisco to see the, the show for that. And they had like Hawaiian shirts that had the Mr. Bungle logo on it. And I got one of those and that's still a Hawaiian shirt that I wear today. Cool. It's probably has too many holes to be considered for, <laughs> for most people to wear, but it's still mostly shirt like enough to be able to wear it at least over a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> cool that's great and it's it's good merch so that's good so the next one if every day was really groundhog's day like people have been saying and i might have to change this question at some point but i feel like it's still kind of a groundhog's day feel f- f- what we're in uh, what song would you have your alarm clock set to play every morning <laughs> i'm gonna go with old 55 by tom white Okay, cool. Nice. Like old right. school Tom Waits. Yeah, good. All right. Coffee or tea or neither? Is both an answer? Yeah. I've, I feel like I'm probably more tea than coffee, particularly after we went and visited Scotland mm. uh, a couple of years ago. We loved the tea culture there and like, getting that tea break in the middle of the day. And I definitely have my favorite tea varietals, more so than I have my favorite coffee varietals. But you know, like being in the beverage industry, I'm a firm believer that it's my duty to drink everything. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I, I just love good, tasty things. So, yeah. I, I, I don't, you know, like today I had Peruvian coffee, like single origin Peruvian coffee pour over. But, you know, like I also love Lapsang Suchan tea or, you know, like a good, like really good Gemai Cha or just Mai Cha tea. So I think... I don't know, both, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's cool. I've never heard anyone say that tea name either. Colin Hay, who, do you know Colin, of Colin Hay? He was led, men at work, the band, and then he has oh, yeah, yeah. a wonderful, like, just a beautiful solo career. Like, I wish, I mean, I don't know if there's a reason he would come on here. I'd love to talk to him. But he has a song called, I think, Beautiful World, and he talks about that tea, actually, because he's from... Lobster, so, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's have of, you ever had it? No. It, it's it's kind of like the scotch of the tea world. It's it's like okay. a smoked black tea. So it's this beautiful kind of rich, smoky, earthy, almost like nutty flavor of tea. That's so cool. it's really great for cocktails, particularly. I mean, particularly non-alcoholic cocktails. It works great in because it adds this like rich complexity that you can't get, you know, like a lot of times non-alcoholic cocktails are these like fruity nonsense, like Mm -hmm. fruity, sugary nonsense that are just kind of like afterthoughts, but (laughs) that gives some depth of character. That's hard to get. Uh, I mean, tea in general is great for non-alcoholic cocktails because of that, but the Lafsan particularly is adds this complexity that's tough to get. And, in cocktail forms. Oh, cool. I'll have to check that out. Uh, all right. And can you think of a time that you like just laughs so already cried or just something that like makes you kind of lose it, maybe misbehave on meetings or something like that? It happens a lot. <laughs> and honestly, it's usually something that's not funny that I think of myself and <laughs> it's not funny to anybody else. And, but I just lose it and then I can't stop laughing for 
five yeah. to ten minutes. <laughs> Understandable. As a as a com- comedian, I'm very familiar with that. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I usually think I'm funny, but the the chances are that that translates into other people thinking I'm funny is usually not a very big portion of the Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, and my last one: Who inspires you right now? Who inspires me? That I mean, I guess it kind of depends which part of my world I'm thinking about. I'm so, so lucky to have Amanda as my co-founder. She's her, her career path and mine have been kind of, kind of similar directions, but I mean, she's just so dynamic and so charismatic and is such a wonderful, caring person and has such great ideas about everything that I'm very lucky to be able to talk and you know like just be in the room with her and and mm-hmm. be able to have that insight and perspective when we're talking and ideating around things that could help the industry so i'm very very humbled and happy to to be in her, her orbit i mean our whole board of directors is super inspiring for different different reasons I'm very inspired by the work that 86 The Barrier and Turning Tables are doing. 86 The Barrier is an organization out of New York that's doing language programs, uh, English and Spanish language programs for folks in the hospitality industry. That Their work is incredible. Turning Tables is an organization out of New Orleans that's providing a hospitality education for folks who are primarily and other workers of color that are looking to kind of step up their hospitality game and giving them it, it's kind of like an externship program that they, they, they go through a career development course and then, then they work with local new orleans restaurants to get them placed in, in whatever part of the industry they're looking to get in and they're just doing phenomenal work and putting raising some soon to be new leaders in the industry. Uh, So that's very cool to see. We've got Bartenders Trust out of the UK and Bartenders Benevolent Fund out of Canada who are both doing kind of similar work at us. And we kind of see them as kind of sister organizations in in our space. And they're doing some really incredible work as well. And we've been inspired by, by some of what they do as well. I mean, like I said, there's just so much work that needs to be done there's no shortage and there's no shortage of people who have stepped up to do some of that work so it's we find inspiration all over the place with that and we're we're just lucky lucky to be in the orbit of some of these folks and be able to talk and bounce ideas off them and oh and radical exchange ashton berry also in new orleans she's you know she's consultant hospitality professional sommelier and activist and i don't know if there's anybody more inspiring in the space of reimagining equity in hospitality spaces and what what a future hospitality industry could look like and everything and she's also just like a great researcher she's a like a great very very i don't know there's nobody i've seen who's as great as researching and, and creating uh very well thought out programming. Uh, she's she's just amazing, and and also Jackie Summers up in New York as well. He was the first black distiller 
post-prohibition. He created a product called Sorel, and he has navigated the hospitality world primarily most of his life as the only black person in the room. So the conversations he's able to have and the insights he's able to provide from coming from that perspective is hugely inspiring. And he's all of these folks are just some of the best people I've ever met. I, the, I mean, there's no other way to say it. I'm, I'm a better person for having met each one of these people. And I don't know. I, I can never thank any of them enough for all the the insight they've given us and the the amount of help we've gotten from the way and the and the belief they've had in us. Lindsay from Lush Life, she's another person. They're they well the whole Lush Life crew, Liz and Brittany and all of them, they they've really been They've been super inspiring and helpful for us. Lush Life, to give you a little bit of background, they do a lot of bartender events. They bartender summer camp called Camp Runamuck in Kentucky and like a bartender education series in Portland called Portland Cocktail Week. And both of those were instrumental in me coming up in the bar industry, kind of on the education side of things. They were super helpful for me and I've learned so much from them. And I mean, we continue to learn so much from Lindsay. Lindsay's on our advisory council and Ashton's on our advisory council. Jeffrey from training tables is on our advisory council. We, we get a lot of help from these. Uh, We lean on that advisory council a lot just to, you know, make sure that what we're doing is, well thought out and that we're not missing something and and that we when we when we go forward with something that we're doing it with intentionality and and getting the results that we're hoping to see cool i mean no that's great and it's like a good list of orgs for people to look up to so if someone wants to know more about you or know more about another round another rally what what should they do? Where should they go online? And I'll have this in show notes too. Another round, another rally.org is our website. And that's got probably all the information you need. That's where you can donate. That's where you can see what aid programs we currently have available. Those are changing and being updated all the time. We also have a list of resources on there, both professional development and kind of health and wellness resources are available as well. We also have some, you know, additional things on there, like ways to, you can contact us if you want to, if there's some sort of custom programming you want to run through us or, you know, we've done kind of GoFundMe style campaigns for different uh, people or businesses uh, that are in need. And those have, those have been super successful. Uh, we've been lucky to help out some folks by doing that. And you can also buy some merch from us through that. But that's probably the best place. And then we're on all social media as well. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as well. And LinkedIn. Okay, super. Well, Travis, this has been really fun and very insightful. So thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really good to talk to you. We were, my wife, Cheyenne, and I were talking about when we met up with you at Amoria Margo the other day. What a fun little trip that was. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Like to just that's when I was living in the city, right? So it was just, yeah, New York City. I mean, that's a great place too. So yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I love that bar. That Souther, I actually, the owner of that spot, we we were in a cabin together at Camp Runamuck one year. So so kind of a little full circle moment there. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. Well, awesome. Well, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RobbieHasSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself. Thank you.